if you think about this morning what requirements that you would have if you were given the charge of recognizing what makes a particular book in the Bible worthy of recognition as a book of the Bible. You think about that for a second. If you were somehow given the charge that you had to say, well, I, I really believe this is a, a book that's worthy to be included in Scripture. Or, well, I'm not so sure. Uh, down through the ages, uh, that is basically the process that happened. It was not a determining which books are Scripture. It was a recognizing of, of which ones have been anointed by God to be Scripture. The church throughout history did not vote on which books were to be included. They just simply recognized that, yes, these are the books that are the Word of God. Now, if you, if you were back then and, and sort of wrestling with certain books, what would your criterion be? Maybe you would want the book to to say something like the old King James says, Thus saith the Lord. You'd know it's God's word then. I mean, God's, God's, I mean, He's mentioned everywhere. I mean, God shows up from the first verse until the last verse, and He's always thus saying all the time. You know what I mean? Just, thus saith the Lord over and over and over. Uh, may, maybe you would, you would like it to have been found in the 1940s among the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've gained a lot of evidence that the Scripture is accurate and reliable from the findings at the caves of Qumran in the Middle East. Maybe you'd say, you know, if it were found there, portions of that book were found there, I think that would give it some strength to be recognized as, yes, this was part of what God intended to be Scripture. Or maybe if it's an Old Testament book, you'd say, well, if it mentions the law quite a bit. The law was very important to the Jewish nation. Obviously, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law. Maybe if it includes references to the law. Or maybe when you flip over to the New Testament, you see that Old Testament book quoted quite often, giving some validity to it, that Jesus and the apostles certainly recognized it as Scripture. Maybe, maybe you'd want it to include some spiritual elements, seeing people pray over and over. Uh, maybe you'd, you'd see evangelism and so on. Maybe you'd want it to be addressed to a particular group of people, written by a particular author, and maybe that would help you say, well, this person was a really a, a historical person. This group of people seems to be who it's addressed to. These things were going on at that particular time. It makes sense that it gives it some credibility. Now, I want to tell you that none of those things are characteristics of the book of Esther. None. Not a single one of them. In fact, God is never mentioned. The name of God is not in the book of Esther at all. It is not written by any particular author that we can easily identify. Nor is it addressed to any particular group of people. Nor is the law referenced whatsoever in the book of Esther, nor is it quoted in the New Testament. So if those are your criteria for including something in Scripture, you might as well rip Esther right out of the Bible right now and set it to the side and let's move on to something else. But the truth is that the book of Esther is indeed a very powerful story, not because of some moralistic kind of good deed that we should do in response, but it is a powerful story to show how God Himself works through people and works through circumstances despite appearing to be in the background. In the book of Esther, you'll not find the name of God, but you cannot explain the book of Esther without the presence of God. And so this morning, as we look at an overview of the book of Esther, I want you to keep that in mind. Turn with me if you've got your Bible handy to Esther chapter 1. Now, Esther comes right before Job. Job comes right before Psalms. So if you kind of go to the middle of your Bible and turn to the left a little bit, you'll find the book of Esther.
Now this morning I'm going to kind of give you just an overview of this particular book. Next week we'll study a particular passage in this book. But I want to highlight some things this morning that I think we can learn and, and take hope in in a book that never even mentions God. Look at verse 1. These events took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Now I'm going to pronounce his name as Xerxes. Now you're going to think, why do you do that? Well, this, this Ahasuerus is the Hebrew spelling of the name Xerxes. Some of your versions may have Xerxes. They are one and the same. So these events took place in the days of Xerxes, who ruled. It's just easier for me to say, too. How about that? I'll just tell you right out. There it is. <clears throat> I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge of Hebrew. I just It's easier for me to say Xerxes than it is for this other guy. All right, so <clears throat> he ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. That's the time period. You have a guy named Xerxes on the throne of the Persian Empire. In, in the remaining parts of the story, we're introduced to a variety of other people. In fact, the queen at the time that this starts, her name is Vashti. And you'll see that in this story, maybe you know a little bit about the book of Esther. You'll see that during a feast that the king has, he calls his queen in to admire her beauty. Now, I don't know what all that means, but he's going to show her off in front of all the people. Look how beautiful my queen is. Now, she was well ahead of her time because you know what she told her husband? No. <laughs> well ahead of her time. I'll leave it at that. But anyway, <clears throat> but she says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to come out and display myself to you and all your cronies. I'm not doing that. And so the king, in response, has her removed as queen and, in fact, sends out a decree to all the women in the land that says they must obey their husbands so that chaos doesn't ensue. Now, <clears throat> I'll leave that one there, too. <clears throat> we'll move on. So Vashti is introduced as the queen who is deposed. Then we get introduced in verse, in verse 5 of chapter 2. Look with me there if you need to turn the page. To a man named Mordecai. A Jewish man was in the fortress of Susa named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. Here we have the introduction of a man named Mordecai who will play very heavily in this story. Then we're introduced a few verses later to Esther. Look at verse 8. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, many young women gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's care. Esther was also taken to the palace and placed under the care of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now here's what's happening. The king has deposed his, his queen. And after his anger cools off and he listens to some sound counsel, he decides, you know what, I probably need another queen. He, maybe he's getting a little lonely, maybe he just figures that's the way it needs to be king and queen. And so he brings all the eligible young women uh, into the, the palace and he begins to sort through them, so to speak. And Esther is one of those women. And then we're introduced to the, the antagonist in the story. Every great plot has the antagonist. Look in chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, After all this took place, King Xerxes honored Haman. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. Here's Haman, the king's right-hand man. He will prove to be the antagonist of the story. The, the plot plays out that Esther becomes queen. That Mordecai, in fact, in chapter 2, saves the life of the king, finding out a plot to assassinate him. That Haman, because the king had, had decreed that everyone should bow down to his right-hand man, Haman gets really angry when Mordecai refuses to bow to anyone but God. And so Haman devises a plan. That he's not only going to take out Mordecai, but he's going to destroy all the Jewish people in the land. There's a decree that's, 
that's sent out that on a particular day that all of the Jews will be exterminated. Esther, being the queen, is urged by her uncle, her adoptive father, Mordecai, to intervene. To go to the king on behalf of, of Mordecai and behalf of all of the Israelite people, all the Jews. And so she does. We'll look at that story a little bit next week. But eventually the Jews are delivered. And throughout the entire story, as I've said before, God is never mentioned. You have His people who are in trouble. You have His people needing His help. And God is never mentioned. It's a curious book. Fascinating book. And I think a book that we can take a principle from that in any aspect of life, no matter what you are dealing with, no matter what age you are, no matter what issue you face, that if you will remember, if you will understand, if you will believe, and if you will think, feel, and act in response to what you know and believe about this principle, that it will radically change your life and your perspective on the future. I believe the principle we can take without any hesitation whatsoever from the book of Esther is this, that though God is unseen, He is never absent. Though God is unseen, He is never absent. My goal this morning is really to help you understand and believe just that. And then, as I said, to think, to feel, and act as if you really do believe it and understand it in every situation of life. I'm no fool. I understand that when you leave here, you go back to whatever you want to call the real world. School, work, family, sickness, hardship, financial difficulty, family problems, whatever it may be. Maybe you get a little bit of a break on Sunday morning and you get to take your mind off of that and focus on the Lord. But the truth is, you go back to whatever you want to call real life. And so this is not to be some sermon that's just sort of, well, that was kind of neat. This really is, as I hope that, that God directs every single week, this really is a message, I believe, that tomorrow when real life happens, that you can respond differently. I really believe that if you'll apply the principle that God is unseen, but He is never absent, then you won't have to live in fear anymore of what's going to happen in the future. You won't have to be bound up by worry and anxiety. I know we've got some hand ringers, I'm sure, in our congregation today. We've got some head rubbers. That's where all my hair went, you know. Well, we've got some nail biters. We, we've got some folks who get a little antsy. And in all truth, we've got some folks who are just bound up by anxiety. Boy, it's just whipped you. It's had its way with you. You live in fear. You live in defeat. You're constantly stressed out. You have no peace in your life. You're always seemingly hanging on by a thread that if one more thing were to happen, then it would just be over. I really believe that when you see the fact that it is true that though God is unseen, He is never absent, it can change your perspective. There's some today who are controlled by circumstances. And when they change, you change. And you're just back and forth all the time. When you have something good happen, you're on cloud nine. When something bad happens, you're just at rock bottom. You have some folks here today who are controlled by difficult people. And you're going to go to work with them tomorrow. You're going to go home with them this afternoon. Don't elbow anybody. Controlled by difficult people. Some are controlled by the dark days, by the emotional swings that take place. Some who live in fear of the future. Scared to death of what tomorrow will bring. Some who are going through difficult family times right now. Relationships that are frayed. Things that just aren't quite right. 
Maybe you wonder, does God really know what's going on in my family? Does He even know our address? Does He know where we live and what goes on in our house? Some are having extreme financial hardship. And you're not just living check to check. You've got a negative cash flow. There's more going out at the end of the month than you're making. And you're maxed out on all your credit cards. And you, you can't make it anymore. You're drowning financially. And you're wondering, can God be trusted to take care of me? If God is there, why am I experiencing this? The truth is, if you act and think and feel as if God is absent, you're going to be a very angry person. I've been there and done that. You're going to have a lot of despair in your life. You might even have a lot of cursing in your life, cursing even toward God. You'll have a lot of anxiety. You'll feel lost. You'll feel lonely. You'll feel abandoned. You'll feel that you are doomed, that life is pointless if you operate as if God is, is absent. You probably won't spend any time studying God's Word or any time in prayer. And in fact, though you wouldn't want to admit it, it makes you a very self-centered person. Your goal is self-protection, self-preservation, because if God's not looking out for me, somebody will, and it's going to be me. Maybe because of that, you become a control freak, paranoid about everybody's actions and motives, and you've got to control it all. Ultimately, it leads you to be very discontented and maybe seeking things that just give you immediate gratification, anything to dull the pain. And maybe you've found some addictive behavior or addictive thought, whatever it may be, that seems to give you some temporary pleasure or relief but doesn't last in the long run. Those who, who live as if God is absent in their life probably become very cynical, seemingly out of control, becoming very confused. Maybe you feel like where you are and what has happened to you doesn't matter to anybody and certainly doesn't matter to God. Because of that, you've experienced a loss of worth. You feel totally worthless, feeling that it doesn't matter what you do. And maybe you've even decided, you know what, I don't really care what I do either. Maybe you've got some, something in mind, some way to rebel against God. <clears throat> we think, well, that's just for young people. If you're a person of any age this morning and you've been trapped by the thought that maybe God doesn't know what's going on, maybe God's not interested in my life, maybe He doesn't see me, then I guarantee you've had those temptations just to do whatever you want to do. Or maybe you've blamed God. You've told Him this is all your fault. If you're God, why did this happen? And why did you allow this? And why can't this? And whatever. Maybe you're looking for a way out. Though God is unseen, He is never absent. The book of Esther shows us that life itself cannot be explained without the presence of God. There are some implications to His presence that I want to highlight quickly for you this morning. Because He is present, first of all, He is, by implication, interested. Because He is present, He is interested. If God is on the scene, He is interested. It's interesting that the events that unfold in Esther and the way that they unfold, they offer proof of God's interest and His concern for His people. Now this happens after years of exile. They had been taken, if you remember, by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and they had been taken to, to exile, and there they are, and the Persians take over the Babylonians, and here they still are, just, just sort of out of their homeland, and, 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 and not slaves, but, but more or less controlled by another government, and maybe they felt as if God had forgotten them. The interest of God is a, is a theme throughout Scripture. I find it fascinating that God is interested in every detail, even the smallest little things. In Luke chapter 12, you may just want to write down the reference. Luke chapter 12, verse 7. Jesus says this. Look at verse 6. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. 
Sparrows, little bitty birds. Realize how many birds fly into windows every year and kill themselves? They're really dumb. Birds are just by nature not very sharp. You understand what I mean? They see what's on the kitchen table, they desire it, they fly into the window, that's it. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Not only are they dumb, they're cheap. They're not worth a whole lot. Yet not one of them is what? Forgotten in God's sight. Now put that together for just a second. Here you have what we perceive to be some of the dumbest and worthless creatures on the earth. And yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Let that just go around in your mind for just a second. Then Jesus says this in verse 7. Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. For those of you that are like me, God not only knows how many you got left, but where they all went. Don't be afraid, he says. You are worth more than many sparrows. If God knows every detail about the life of a sparrow that we view as dumb and cheap, and then he turns around and says, now, now you, you think that's something. God knows how many hairs you have, where they all fell out, when they'll all fall out, and you're worth more than sparrows. The point being, God is interested in all the details. The Bible makes it clear that God sees all, that He knows all, and that His attention is concentrated everywhere all at the same time. I can focus my attention on one thing real well for about 30 seconds, and my mind starts to wander. So in this point, wake up your neighbor. Their mind has started to wander a little bit. I've been going at this now for about 15 minutes. So if I'm 30-second intervals of paying attention, you've got a lot of 30 seconds there to not pay attention in the last 15 minutes. Realize God's attention is concentrated everywhere equally all at the same time. You try to figure that one out over lunch, and it'll blow your mind. <clears throat> but it's true. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, the, the Bible speaks to the fact that God... Not only does he know all, but he knows what's on the inside. He's selecting King David to be his king. He tells Samuel, don't look at the outside. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not judging him on that. I know what's on the inside. We're pretty good judges of what's on the outside. Sometimes we have trouble seeing what's going on the inside. God knows all. He sees all. And then in Psalm chapter 33, in verses 13 to 15, we see this truth. The Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from His dwelling place. He alone crafts their hearts. He considers all their works. God knows it all. He is interested in it all. Now you contrast this with something like a philosophy of deism that, that just says, well, God is there, but He's really not interested. He's kind of sort of like that watchmaker that put it all together and then just took a break. You know, He's just on eternal lunch. You know, he's, up, he's playing shuffleboard somewhere. He's not really paying attention. He just put it all together and let it work. It's not the God of the Bible. Or you look at the fatalism that's found in karma. Well, you, just, you sort of create your own you know, good you know, uh, situation maybe for something down the road. If you're good enough, it'll kind of come back around to you, but you better watch out. If you do anything, it's not good because it's going to come around too. It's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is interested in a very, very personal way with every single detail of our lives. And he's not just the kind of person that you talk to and they act interested. You know people like that? Well, I hope I'm not that person in your life. I'm working on that. To not just act interested, but to truly be interested in what's going on in the lives of other people. I'm sure you've got somebody like that. You can tell them this big, grand story. And they're not paying a bit of attention, but they're nodding. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then the next time you see them, you tell them the same story again just to see if they were paying attention. They just, nah, uh -huh, uh -huh. they're not paying attention at all. 
That's not the God of the Bible. He's always paying attention. He's always interested. Not only that, but he is active. Because he is present, he's interested. Because he is present, he is active. Again, this is not the God of deism who's sort of uninvolved. The great news is on this that God, he is active absolutely, and he always acts in accordance with his nature. He is loving, he is just, he is holy, he is thoughtful, he is purposeful. And in the big things and the small things, he acts according to his nature. We see that. Though he is unseen, he is never absent in the book of Esther, and he is always active. The Psalms talk a lot about the actions of God. In Psalm chapter 66, in verse 5, the psalmist writes, Come and see the works of God. His acts toward mankind are sort of impressive. And he says his acts toward mankind are awe-inspiring. That's, that's what the version said. Not, not well, yeah, he, yeah that's kind of neat what God did. No, no. His acts toward mankind are awe-inspiring. You ever been speechless? You ever seen something and you just... I don't know what to say. That's amazing. That's how God works. His acts toward mankind leave us speechless. Psalm chapter 145, a great psalm about the greatness of God. I exalt you, my God the King, and I praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. I will honor your name forever and ever. Yahweh is great and highly praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation will declare your works to the next and proclaim your mighty acts. I will speak of your glorious splendor and your wonderful works. They will proclaim the power of your awe-inspiring works, and I will declare your greatness. They will give a testimony of your great goodness and will sing joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and great in faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all He has made. And, you have, and, you have, and what you have made rather will praise you, Lord. The godly will bless you. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and declare your might, informing all peoples of your mighty acts and of the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your rule is for all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His words and gracious in all His actions. The Lord helps all who fall. He raises up all who are oppressed. All eyes look to you and you give them food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and gracious in all His acts. The Lord is near all who call out to Him, and all who call out to Him with integrity. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry for help and saves them. The Lord guards all who love Him, but destroys all the wicked. My mouth will declare the, pra the Lord's praise. Let every living thing praise His holy name forever and ever. The psalmists go on and on and on about the awe-inspiring works of God, proving to us, just like the book of Esther does, God may be unseen, but He's never absent. And because He is present, He is active. God, in the book of Esther, delivers His people. He provides for their salvation from utter destruction. He is loving, He is just, He is holy. He is righteous and He is pure throughout the book of Esther. He has a purpose for everything that happens. We're taking an overview today of the book of Esther, but I read it a couple of times this week and it's fascinating. We'll get into that in just a minute. This is not some distant providence, some grandfather who's just kind of nice to everybody. This is in-the-moment action that God is involved with. The Bible says certainly that God's ways are unsearchable. 
but they are consistent with His nature. We can't fully understand God, but we can know of His nature. And we can believe that though He is unseen, He is never absent. He's interested. He's active. And thirdly, He is in control. He is in control. Look with me in the book of Esther again in chapter 1. If you were to read this book and read it with the understanding that God is not mentioned, that He seems to be sort of in the background, you might wonder, well, who's really in charge then? In every other book of the Bible, you've got God's name there. It's pretty evident. You know, God's the one calling the shots and all that. You might think that King Xerxes is in charge. In those days, verse 2 of chapter 1, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. You might think that a guy with that much power and that much money and that much prestige who can throw a feast, a big party, and it takes six months to get everything together and pull it off. And he displays, it says, I love the wording, the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. You might think that because he's introduced in the very beginning of this book, and he's the only king mentioned in this book, that he might be in charge. But it's not him. And it's not Haman either, the the king's right-hand man. Look in chapter 3 and verse 2. This is after Haman has been given a high rank. The entire royal staff of the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. The members of the royal staff of the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why are you disobeying the king's command? When they had warned him day after day, he still would not listen to them. They told Haman to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he told them he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage to him, he was filled with rage. And when, the, when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, Haman decided not to do away with Mordecai alone. He set out to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Xerxes' kingdom. You might think that the king's right-hand man, who's offended that this, that this Jew will not bow down to him. And he goes before the king, and you'll see in verses 7 through 15 that he gets the king to sign a decree. That says that on a certain day at a certain time, that that's the end for the Jews. You might think that Haman, or even that decree, were in charge. You might think that the exile, they'd been there for so many years. You might think that the exile was sort of the end for them. You might think that this bad circumstance, this this bad outlook, that's what's really in control. But I tell you this, that despite appearing to be in the background, God was in control throughout the entire story. His control is evidenced by the fact that nothing that happens is an accident. Esther is chosen as queen. In fact, the Bible describes her as beautiful, absolutely radiant. She's the one that's chosen as queen, even though she's Jewish. Mordecai's position allows him the opportunity to get wind of the plot to assassinate the king. You think that's by accident? You think he just happened to be in the right place at the right time? Well, it wasn't that fortunate. The king in chapter 6 has a restless, sleepless night. And it's, it's his custom, I suppose, to have the day's events read to him so that he can go to sleep. And it just so happens that that previous day, 
that Mordecai saved his life. And so the king has this read to him, and he says, was there anything done for that guy? That guy saved my life. Maybe we should honor him in some way. Do you think it's by accident that the king couldn't sleep that particular night? That Haman just happened to be where he was? That Esther just happened to be the queen? So Haman, or Mordecai, rather, could happen to mention to her, they're trying to kill your husband, that she would just happen to mention it to him, that the, that the criminals would happen to be caught, that Mordecai would happen to be honored. Nothing in the book of Esther happens by accident. God is in control. And perhaps my favorite part of the entire story are the several elements of irony that God uses. I, th- I really believe that God, far and away more than I can understand, has, has a great and divine and an incredible sense of humor. Irony is simply a turn of events that's different from or opposed to what was expected. Realize that Haman, when he goes before the king and wants to seek the life of, of Mordecai, He's going to have him, have him hung. And you know what happens after the king has read the day's account of, of, of how Mordecai saves his life? And, and, and he says, has anything been done for him? It's interesting who he turns to. He, he turns to Haman and he says, Haman, what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? It, it's amazing. The king, the king says that, and, and Haman entered the king and, says, and, and the king says in, in chapter 6, verse 6, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? I mean, this is great. You, I mean, it, this is incredible. Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which is a royal diadem on its head. Put the garment on the horse under the charge of... of and the horse, rather, under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square, and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. <laughs> Verse 10, the king told Haman, hurry and do what you just proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew. Isn't it amazing how God works? Haman figures, well, the king's going to honor me. I'm going to get to ride on his horse wearing his jacket with his kingly symbol, and everybody's going to have to bow down now and praise me. And guess who the king says to do that for? (laughs) Mordecai the Jew, his hated enemy. Haman eventually, though he constructed gallows to hang Mordecai on, guess who is hung on those gallows? Haman. God uses irony. The Jews were hunted at first by this decree, and later on, when Esther goes before the, the, the king after Haman has been executed, you know what decree is now sent? That the Jews can go and hunt their enemies. The first banquet that we saw in chapter 1 celebrated and honored an earthly king. But we see in chapter 9 the reversal of all this. That there's a feast called Purim at the end of this particular book. And this feast honors the real king. There's more irony, obviously, throughout the scriptures. The greatest of all the ironies is the cross itself that it appeared that Jesus had been defeated, that evil and darkness had won the day. But it was through that, under God's control, that that event brings about and provides for our salvation and our victory. Because God is in control, folks, there is no need to linger in fear. No need to linger in panic. There's no need to wonder about the ultimate outcome. God is in control and He uses people and He uses circumstances and He uses irony and He'll even use nature 
to bring about what He wants to happen. He is interested. He is active. He is in control. What do you do in response to that? I mean, how should you think? How should you feel? How should you act? In response to the incredible truth that in a book where God is not even mentioned, it is unmistakably present that He is active, that He is interested, that He is in control. I think we need to be aware of God's presence. Be aware of those implications. Some of us maybe just need to be still. To stop analyzing everything. To stop relying on our human logic and and resources. To stop trying to manipulate circumstances and people. To pull strings. Maybe some of us just need to be still and just listen. God, what are you saying? God, for the first time, I'm going to stop pretending as if I'm in control. And God, I'm going to look to you, the one who actually is in control. Maybe you need to just be confident and trust Him. Maybe you need to realize that His nature is good, loving, just, holy. That He always acts in accordance with that nature. And that He's always at work. And that you can't see what He's doing. You ever had one of those circumstances where you say, Huh, now I see what God was doing. I couldn't see it then. And boy, I wouldn't have chosen that path. No way, I wouldn't want to repeat that. But now I see what God was doing. Maybe you'd be confident in Him and trust Him. Maybe you'd realize He's growing your faith. Maybe this morning before you leave, you'd just tell Him through prayer, Lord, I'm going to begin from this moment forward. Tomorrow when life happens, I'm just going to trust You. Maybe you'd be obedient. This is not a story about just being passive. We'll see this next week. We all have a part to play in this. Maybe you'd look for God's hand in your life. Not for signs, trying to pick up, well, maybe that's a sign that I need to do this or that. No, but to really look for God's hand. To praise Him even in the smallest things. Maybe in your family, your financial situation, or your fear over the future. Maybe you just tell God this morning, you know what, Lord, I just need to see you in all of this. Lord, it seems as if you are absent this morning in my life. It seems as if I've been abandoned. It seems as if I'm on my own. God, I just need to see you. Lord, I know that you're there. I just want to see your hand working. I want to see what you're doing. Is God interested? Is he active? Is he in control? I believe that based upon the book of Esther and certainly all of Scripture, we can say emphatically, yes, he is interested. Yes, he is always active. Yes, he is absolutely, without doubt, in control. What do you do with a book that never mentions God? A book of the Bible that never mentions God. I, I believe in Esther. We see him at every turn. What do you do when God seems absent in your life? One of my favorite preachers and authors is a guy named Chuck Swindoll. And he wrote a book about Esther, and he includes this quote in there, and he says, When I come to this book that never mentions God, I see him all the more profoundly and eloquently portrayed throughout it. It's there in invisible ink, just like life. I've never seen skywriting that says, I'm here, you can count on me. I've never heard an audible voice in the middle of the night reassuring me, I'm here, my child. But by faith I see him, and inaudibly I hear him on a regular basis, reading him written in the events of my life whether it be the crushing blows that drive me to my knees or the joyous triumphs that send my heart winging. When I pause long enough to look back, I realize it is the unsearchable mind, the unfathomable will, the sovereign control, the irresistible providence providence of God at work because He, though invisible, remains 
invincible. Only God could do what he did in Esther. I thank God, I really do, for the book of Esther because it shows us how God operates even when we don't see him. Even when we think he's just in the background. The cross of Calvary, when Jesus went there to die, certainly proves that's true as well. As I mentioned, it appears that all is lost, that evil is won, and yet God, interested, active, in control, brings about the salvation of the world through that event. How will you think and feel, respond to somebody like God who's active, who's interested, who's in control of your life? Maybe today you declare to the Lord and to yourself, I'm no longer going to be controlled by my circumstances. No longer going to be controlled by these difficult people in my life. No longer going to be controlled by dark days or my swings of emotion or by the challenges that I face. And I'm going to live in light of what really happens in the end. In Philippians it says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes that that I consider these present sufferings to be no match for what I will receive one day in glory. God wins in the end. He is absolutely victorious. The book of Esther cannot be explained without the presence of God, and neither can our lives. Swindoll wrote this, and I'll close with this. Centuries after Esther lived, there lived a man named William Cowper. At the young age of 32, racked by deep depression and despair, Cowper decided finally to take matters into his own hands and kill himself. He hired a carriage to take him to the Thames River. The carriage driver, a total stranger, seeing what the desperate young man intended, grabbed him and kept him from jumping into the swift current of the broad tidal river. Back alone in his home, Cowper took poison. Someone found him in time to provide the necessary antidote. That night he took a knife and fell on it. And would you believe, the blade broke. Early the next morning, he hung himself. But a neighbor, concerned about Cowper, found him and cut him down before he died. Because of the unfathomable, unsearchable, inscrutable power of God, invisible though it was, William Cowper was unable to take matters into his own hands. He couldn't even take his own life. Suffering from acute depression and mental distress, verging on insanity, he turned increasingly to Christ and Christ alone for consolation. Later, he struck up a friendship with the great John Newton. Eventually, the two of them collaborated on a publication called The Only Hymns, in which Newton released his best-loved hymn, Amazing Grace. I honestly was brought to the... (laughs) I don't know if it was sort of funny or just absolutely overwhelming, the awareness that God certainly is interested Certainly is active, and he is absolutely in control. When I read this particular story and then looked at the the song we were going to sing in closing today, we're going to sing in closing Amazing Grace. Danny and I did not collaborate this week on what we were going to do for the songs. Danny selected them, sent an email out. They appear in your bulletin on the screen. I can say that in the smallest, little seemingly inconsequential things of life, that God is interested, that He is active, and He is absolutely in control. I couldn't see how God was going to put together some random story about a guy who wanted to kill himself with the song we would sing at the end of the service today. But isn't it amazing in the smallest things, not coincidental, 
but how God works. Though God is unseen, He is never, never absent. Let's pray together. As we close with your head bowed and and your eyes closed and thinking about what God has spoken to you this morning, maybe you'd tell Him for the first time, for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, Lord, I, I trust You. Maybe you'd see that even through the darkest circumstances that we can imagine, Jesus Himself, God's own Son, hanging on the cross, that God was certainly interested, certainly active, certainly in control to provide salvation. That salvation is received only by faith, not through doing good things to earn it. None of us can. But maybe this morning you'd see God as who He really is. You'd see Him interested in your life. You'd see Him active You'd see him in control, and you'd submit, and you'd give him authority, and you'd yield to him and say, Lord, I trust you, and I want you in charge of my life. I believe in you. I believe the truth about Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He died for my sins. He is the only way that I can receive eternal life. Maybe this morning you'd say, Lord, you know the situation I'm dealing with, and it seems you're, you're, you're absent. Lord, I need to see you in this. What's on your heart this morning that you need to tell the Lord? How is it God wants you to respond? Perhaps in a moment you'd like to come forward and you'd take my hand and we'll pray together. Or maybe you'd pray silently by yourself down here at the step. If you truly believe and truly understand and you truly think and feel and act as if God is never absent, it will change your life. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are interested infinitely more interested than we can imagine that you are active even when we can't see you and Lord thank you that you are in control that you are perfect and holy and just and righteous and loving and gracious toward us and you are in control so Lord help us to trust you and to see you for those who are in dark times Lord that desperately need to see your hand I pray that you would show them what you're doing you'd increase their faith. Lord, for those who need to see you as the one who we're all accountable to, the one who loves us and graciously sent Jesus to provide for salvation, God, I pray today that those folks would place their faith in you and receive salvation through faith. Lord, help us as we leave here to think and to feel and act as if we really do believe it's true that you are, though unseen, never absent. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.